Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. Hi, I'm Michelle Ford and I'm the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Today I'm here with Christy Ward, who's a postdoc at SEAC. Welcome, Christy. Thanks, Michelle. Christy, your work focuses on gender and labour in Cambodia. What started you researching this area? Well, my research area is broadly the politics of representation and I started uh, researching in Cambodia back in 2010 and I was particularly interested in how people are represented by civil society organisations, including non-government organisations. So I had worked in the non-government organisation sector for many years and I became interested in, you know, how NGOs represent people and how people respond to those representations, but importantly, what that means for people living in communities. Okay, so your work was originally on the edge of Phnom Penh, right? That's right. So uh, my original research looked at uh, one urban informal settlement in Phnom Penh, which was on the outskirts. And I started looking at women's empowerment projects, looking at how NGOs intervened in those communities, the types of things that they did, but really importantly, how people responded to that. What did women think of it? And what did it do to social relations, not only in the short term, but in the longer term? We know that in Cambodia, there has been billions of dollars of aid that has been invested And we know what the short-term outcomes are at a project level, but we know very little about the long-term effects of aid over decades and what it does to social relations. So that's a really interesting question. And I'm particularly interested in the gender aspect of it. What did you find about how women thought about these projects? The first thing that I found was there was a high level of violence in communities and gender-based violence at multiple levels. So domestic and family violence, political violence and economic violence. But the critical finding from the research was that when aid intervenes, it creates a new type of violence. And I refer to that as symbolic violence. So it fractures relationships between communities and between people living in those communities. And it creates power dynamics between elites who have a lot of power in communities and people who have very little power. So when it intervenes, it enables people who already have a lot of power to gain more power and people who have less power to be beholden to those elites. So how did you transition from that to looking at the labour movement? Well, that's a really interesting question. So when I was there uh, in 2013, it was a pivotal moment for Cambodian politics. It was the general election where the ruling party had almost lost power, so the Cambodian People's Party, to the Cambodian National Rescue Party. And what I saw at that time was a new expression of politics thousands, hundreds of thousands of people going out to the streets, including garment factory workers, and protesting not only against minimum wage, but also against the existing regime. And this was a first uh, for Cambodia. And so I started to think really differently about how transformative change happens and what the role is of different civil society actors in that process. And trade unions were pivotal at that time. So this has turned into quite a big project, hasn't it? It has. So my current research uh, is now looking at forms of collectivism and activism among female workers, both in the garment sector and in the construction sector. Now, I understand there's been a lot of work on the garment sector, but not so many people have looked at the construction sector, have they? 
That's right. Uh, most of the research that's conducted on labour relations in Cambodia either looks at state labour relations and looks at the state or it looks at the garment sector. And there's reason for that. The garment sector is the most critical sector economically to Cambodia. It's enabled very high levels of GDP growth and it's also given millions of people jobs in the formal sector, whereas the construction sector employs less people uh, but hasn't really had any attention focused on it in terms of how it shapes labour relations in the country. Okay, so it's an understudied sector, but why look at it? Why is it important? Well, there's two main reasons. Number one, uh, the construction sector is attracting a lot more foreign direct investment at the moment. So it's now its growth in terms of its contribution to GDP has grown quite substantially. So it's important economically for the government, but also for workers as well. So it does provide 200,000 jobs. And one thing that's quite different about Cambodia compared to other countries, either in the region or around the world, is that it employs a large number of women. So about 35% of the workforce is female compared to 1% in many other countries. So this concept of gender-based violence in the workplace, what does that mean? So there's a new international convention on violence at work and eliminating violence at work. And so this has prompted quite a large focus or a strong focus on how we address these issues in the workplace. So traditionally, when we think about gender-based violence in the workplace, a lot of research, including in Cambodia in the garment sector, has been done on sexual harassment, which is one form of gender-based violence. Uh, Gender-based violence at work encompasses uh, also what happens on the way to work. It encompasses what happens in the household if your household or your accommodation happens to be provided by your employer. So it's a much broader definition of forms of violence because of your gender in the workplace outside of sexually-based forms. Okay, that's really interesting. You've got this big project now looking at gender-based violence in the construction sector. How is that project structured? So we're working with a number of partners at the local level and the international level. At the international level, we're working with the Solidarity Centre, which is a US-based organisation, a solidarity support organisation. And from Australia, we're working with uh, Union Aid Abroad, AFIDA, which is an Australian-based solidarity support organisation. There's also a global union federation who have affiliates in Cambodia, and that's the Building and Woodworkers International. And then locally, we'll be working with uh, some of the key union confederations and federations who focus uh, on the construction sector and have their membership in that sector. And how are you actually going to go about the research? So the research has two components. One is a large-scale survey talking to women about their experiences of gender-based violence, what it includes, what the impacts have been, uh, some of the support services that they may have received, uh, and how unions have responded to this issue. And we're doing that survey in four provinces in Cambodia. And we're also uh, surveying women in a number of sections of the construction sector, so different types of construction, whether that's in uh, constructing buildings or whether it's in uh, construction materials like cement. The other component is a qualitative component, undertaking a number of interviews with international labour movement actors, also some women to go a bit deeper to understand what the issues are for women, and then also uh, local unions at the federation and the enterprise level. So what are the benefits of working with union partners on this sort of project? 
change. Change is the critical benefit. So we're actually looking at the intersection between the international labour movement and local labour movements, but also thinking about, you know, what are some of the barriers to the uptake of these ideas about gender-based violence? What are some of the barriers to implementing stronger policies and union strategies around gender-based violence and what can be done about it? So we're taking a very participatory approach, working very closely with local unionists to design the survey, to undertake some of the data analysis and also around dissemination, but really working very closely with them to understand what's coming out of the research and what can be done about it. What are some strategies that local unionists can develop? That sounds like a really exciting project, but that's not the only thing you're doing right now, is it? No, I'm also working on a book out of my earlier research. Could you tell us a bit more about that book? Sure. So the book is called Development as Violence and what's in it is as promised. So it's based on my earlier research, but really exploring uh, the way or what happens when development organisations intervene. So the critical argument that the book makes is that development interventions catalyse symbolic violence and they have more of a propensity to do so in aid-dense contexts. So a lot of the research that's already been done has looked at the relationship between aid and conflict in existing situations of conflict and the drivers in those analyses are the conflict situation. What I'm looking at in this book is the aid context, so the legacies of aid, the processes of aid, the way that aid uh, intervenes and categorises people and therefore creates markers around who's in and who's out, who's included and who's excluded, and then how struggles over the right to be involved actually lead to conflict in communities. So aid's actually creating conflict then? Yes, that's the central premise of the book is that when it intervenes, it creates uh, symbolic violence or it leads to symbolic violence. So unlike physical violence, which a lot of research focuses on, which is overt and forceful, symbolic violence operates to conceal different mechanisms of consent and recognition. And so more powerful groups impose their norms on less powerful groups and everyone consents to this without being conscious of it. So could you give us an example of that? Sure. So one of my strongest memories, I think, from the earlier research is a woman that I had met over various years, and I came to know her quite well. And she was a participant in this woman's empowerment project. And every year in the community, it flooded because the community was based on the edge of a river. And so every year when it flooded, the community leader would ask different women, including this woman, to walk through the community walk through floodwater that was contaminated with human waste to ask people to attend a meeting. And so as a result of doing this time and time again, this particular woman had sores all over her legs that required medical treatment. And I asked her one day, I said, why Why do you do it? Why don't you stop walking around and asking people to go? You know, it's creating health problems for you. And she said, well, I do it because I have an obligation to do it. I do it because I'm in the group. I do it because I'm connected to the community leader. And so I feel like I need to continue to do this. So there was consent on her part to, to this power dynamic between the community leader and to herself. But it was an act that was causing her harm. And I saw similar examples time and time again throughout my research of the way that because of aid, more powerful groups force less powerful groups to do certain things to which they consented. Okay, so it's not that they're being forced to do it overtly, but you're saying the structural characteristics of the aid relationship are making them do it at some other level. 
that's exactly right. People don't want to be excluded and people need to be included because participating in projects gives you a direct financial benefit, but it also gives you access to other conduits of resources. So uh, local money lending that the local community member might be engaged in and other sort of forms of exchange that are usually dominated by more powerful people in the community. So this sounds like quite a controversial argument. How do you think the aid sector is going to respond to it? I think that's a really interesting question. There's certainly acknowledgement in the aid sector at the moment of some of these politics and a real push towards thinking about aid politically and how aid works. Uh, But at the end of the day, aid is an industry and different people at different levels, whether you're a technical advisor getting paid uh, high sums of money as a contractor or you're a local NGO worker in a Cambodian NGO, everybody gets something out of the structure of aid. Um, So it is a very controversial argument. People are thinking about how to do aid differently. At one end of the spectrum, it's do we need to do away with the existing aid system as we know it, which is unlikely to happen? And if that doesn't happen, how do we then work in ways that are able to share power with individuals and try and break down some of these dynamics? So ways that of working that lead to structural transformative change rather than simply more women attended training. So that sounds all very well in theory, but how do you actually affect that change? You know, what can be done to really transform the industry in these ways? So I've been really lucky to be involved in a number of projects in my practical experience in the aid industry. And one was based in India and New Delhi, where we were working with a group of refugees to actually set up refugee-led services. And this was the first time that this had ever happened in Delhi. And we stepped back and actually said, well, we're not the decision makers. People were in decision-making roles. And the outcome of this was that by having confidence, self-worth and being able to make decisions themselves, the community set up an NGO in and of itself. So they set up a community centre, they ran the services, they managed the funds, they were the ones that sat at the table with UNHCR for the first time. And the benefits of that were people felt confident and able to run their own services for their own communities, but it also shifted the perceptions of people in UN agencies about what was possible, what was achievable at the community level. Well, thank you so much for those fascinating insights and I wish you all the best for the next stage of your research. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.